Well, today is a great opportunity. When we hired Austin back a year, year and a half or so ago, uh, one of the things that we committed to was to help him and mentor him to uh, grow in ministry. And he's in college right now. He's taking online classes. And part of this process, too, is we want to give an opportunity to preach. We license him to preach. And so today we're going to invite Austin to come on up here. And um, we want to give him that opportunity. But not only that, not only to mentor him, um, Austin has a lot of great deep knowledge in theology as well. And he has a great uh, uh, mind for spiritual things. And so we're excited to hear what he has to share with us today. And I just told him, don't be nervous. We're all friends, right? <laughs> and I remember one of the first times I preached. I preached on, I remember this till the day I died, Philippians 4.8. And the message was excellency. And I must have said excellent a hundred times because the pastor came up afterward with a smile on his face. That was an excellent message. <laughs> so, you know, when you're nervous, you do crazy things. So let me pray for Austin. Father, we just thank you for Austin. We thank you for all he means to our church family and his leadership with the youth group and worship team. And now, Lord, we're excited that we get to hear from uh, him, from your word, Lord. And I pray that you'll just open our hearts and minds to listen and just uh, give him peace, take away any anxiety and nervousness and just help him to share from his heart. And we just pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ooh. <laughs> well, good morning. This is not the uh, my usual spot, obviously. Um, thank you uh, so much, um, Mario and... Uh, all of the C's, and thank you, Andy and Chuck, for, um, for leading us in worship this morning. It was excellent. Um, and um, that, that last song, um, Waymaker, our God is a God who made a way for us when there was no way. So um, there's not going to be the usual notes this morning where you fill in the blanks. I figured I'd just focus on the writing of this sermon and speaking it before I got into making slides and all of those complicated things. So I decided we're just going to have this up here. And I was originally just going to go through verse 9 of this, this chapter here. But I quickly realized that I really needed to go over verse 10 as well. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be examining verses 1 through 10 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that your word will not return void. We thank you that we have the inspired scripture, the inspired word of God before us, and that we can know the things that you want us to know about you. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your gracious love that saved us. Lord, I just pray that this morning as as we examine uh, these texts that you would speak through me, that my agenda would not come through, but yours would. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We did not deserve any of the kindness that you've shown us. And Lord, we rejoice in the truth of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in this passage, we see Paul explaining to those who are in Christ our past, our present, and our future in Christ. And to fully understand salvation and the gospel, we must first understand our condition without Christ and without the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. The first verse says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So this here is describing our fallen and previous state without Christ. Those who are not in Christ are spiritually dead. Now, in the first century AD, when a corpse was prepared and buried, their eyes were shut, they were washed, and they were wrapped in cloth and had perfumes applied to them. So Paul here is using this picture of a dead man to explain our position without Christ. A dead man was wrapped in cloth, sprinkled with perfumes and oils. We too were wrapped and bound by our sin, and we were covered in our trespasses. Charles Spurgeon says in his commentary on Ephesians 2, Referring to our sin, these were your grave clothes. You were wrapped up in them. Nay, this was your sarcophagus. You were shut up in it as in a great stone coffin, dead in trespasses and sin. There was no chance that these buried, bound bodies could rip out of the cloths that held them or open their eyes. They were dead. Now David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, cried out to God in Psalm 51. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David knew that from the moment of his conception, he was dead in his sin and iniquity. And so were we. And left to our own devices, we'd only continue to be dead in our sins. So the first thing that we need to understand about salvation and what it is, is that salvation is from sin. We are saved from our sin. That's the first thing. Our problem as human beings is not a lack of harmony with our environment and that we're out of sync with nature and out of touch with one another. It's not even that we do more evil than good. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. So man's problem, again, is not lack of harmony with nature or our environment or with one another, and it's not that we do more evil than we do good. Our problem is that even though we are physically alive, we are spiritually dead without Christ. In our fallen state, God sees us as dead. I quote John MacArthur, Because he is dead to sin, he is dead to spiritual life, truth, righteousness, inner peace, and happiness, and ultimately to every other good thing. Now, there's something that I want to be clear on about sin. Sin is not just an act that we do. Sin is a state of being. Dead in trespasses and sins. We were not dead because we had committed a sin. We were dead because we were already in sin. Our very existence was sin. There's a very famous evangelist who goes out on the streets. He preaches the gospel to people. He presents the word of the law to them through the Ten Commandments. His name is Ray Comfort. And he shows them how they've already broken some of God's commandments. He asks them if they've ever used God's name in vain. And if they say yes, he tells them, well, the Bible says that that's blasphemy and that is a sin. He asks them if they've ever told a lie. And unless they're a compulsive liar, most people would say yes. And he tells them that makes you a liar. And that is also sin. He goes on to say that if you've ever stolen anything, well, that makes you a thief. But then he takes it a step further. He quotes Jesus 
from Matthew 5. And Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is telling us here that it's not our actions that make us sinful. Our sinful actions do not make us sinful. The sin is already in our hearts. From the moment of our conception, we are sinful beings. It's who we are. Now, many people will say, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't done that many bad things. I'm not as bad as him or her or whoever over here. I lead a pretty good life. I I don't lie or cheat. I pay my taxes. I love my kids. I love my spouse. And you know, those things all might be true. But ultimately, those things don't matter. It's not like we start out our lives with a clean slate, with no good deeds and no bad deeds. Some see it as a scoreboard where one team, the good, righteous side, starts out with zero points. And the evil, sinful side also starts out with zero points. And as we live out our lives, we begin to build up points on the righteous and good side. But as we sin, we also build up points on the evil, sinful side. And so those people will think that once they get to the end of their lives, God will take a look at the score, and he'll either see that good has won or that evil has won. And if he sees that good has won, he'll graciously let you into heaven. But as some views, as the Roman Catholic view, if you have more evil than good, you get to work your way back. He lets you work your way back to goodness in purgatory. And people can even pray for you when you're already dead. But this is not the teaching of Scripture. This is not what Scripture tells us. Romans 3, verses 11 and 12 Paul quotes the Psalms, and he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Our score before God doesn't begin with a zero-zero score. If we had a score... The good side would have already lost. We would have infinitely negative points. And the evil side would have seemingly already won with infinitely high points. And for some reason, still, people due to their own selfishness and sinfulness think that if they continue to do enough good things, they will win God's favor. If I just read my Bible every day, God will love me. If I pray enough, God will help me. If I give enough to my church, God will bless me. 
The problem comes with the first two letters of each of those sentences. If I, if I, if I, if I. Let me remind you, those who are not in Christ are dead. And if you are in Christ prior to your current state, you were dead. And what can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. He can only continue to be dead. Verses 2 and 3 in Ephesians 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here Paul continues to explain and describe the believer's former state without Christ. So following the course of this world, what is the course of this world? Well, simply put, it's the way of sinful men. Men who are dead in their sin. Sinful men may disagree on many different ideas such as right and wrong and hold to different standards and ideologies. They may have different political views. But these dead, sinful men hold one thing in common. They reject the things of God and embrace a life of sinful indulgence. It goes on, following the prince of the power of the air. Well, this prince, of course, is referring to Satan, who is, according to John 12, 31, currently the ruler of this world. And the power of the air is most likely referring to Satan's demons that exist in the spiritual realm. So we see that everyone who is unsaved is walking according to and under the influence, pressure, and even control of Satan and his demons. So why is Paul telling us all of these things about people who aren't saved? Is he just trying to get us to point out all the people that aren't saved? What's his purpose? His purpose was not to show and explain what an unsaved person looks like. Paul is reminding believers of how they formerly walked. As believers in Christ, we too once walked according to the ways of this world, sinning and living however we wanted to. We lived and dwelled in the lusts and desires of our flesh, and without a second thought, we would give in to our heart's deepest desires, which Jeremiah 17.9 tells us is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We abandoned all to do whatever felt good and deliberately defied the ways of God. Every single believer was once lost in the world lost in their own fleshly desires, and lost to the power of Satan. Now, it's a widely popular view that every human being is a child of God. But according to Scripture, those who have not received salvation through Jesus Christ are by nature children of wrath. 
We were by nature children of wrath. We deserved to receive the complete and total wrath of God. And without being reconciled to him through the cross of Jesus Christ, we only deserved God's condemning judgment. And we were not only sons of disobedience, but just like the rest of mankind, we were God's object of eternal condemnation and judgment, children of wrath. For the wages of sin is death. God requires payment for sin. The payment that he requires is death. If we are already born in our sin, then it would follow that we deserve death, eternal judgment, and suffering because of our own wicked hearts. So let me run it back to the beginning really quick. We were dead in our sins. No capacity to open our eyes to see the light of God's truth and no chance of escaping the clutches of our death in sin. Isaiah says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Some translations read, dirty rags. We have nothing to bring to God's throne. We have less than nothing to bring to God's throne. Even our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags. We have no righteousness on our own. And as dead men and women, we would continue walking in our sin and living for our own desires. We should still be dead, deserving of eternal punishment and the fullness of God's wrath. But thank God that it doesn't end there. In verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Our salvation is from and out of our sin, and it's by the great love of God. God is so rich in mercy. His mercies are abounding, endless, and immeasurable. And the first two words of that verse are the key to a correct understanding of salvation in Christ. But God, we could do nothing, but God. We were dead, but God. We are created in the very image of God and for his glory, and he desires to be reunited with those that he created. But we couldn't cross that gap. We couldn't get there. But because of the great riches of his mercy, he made a way. Our salvation in Christ is for God's glory because of his great love. The very reason Jesus bore our sin on the cross was for the glory of the Father and by his immeasurable love. Now I want us to imagine a situation here and... I don't doubt that something like this has happened before, but um, it is a very sad situation. Imagine a man in cold blood guns down a child, killing them. 
we would hope that this man would be arrested, taken to trial, put in prison for a very, very long time. And if there was some sort of fine or due that he had to pay, that too would be owed. And after that was paid, and maybe if he got off for, for good behavior, he could get out early. His sentence was served, his fine was paid, and according to the law, he had no guilt. But this wouldn't miraculously bring the child back to life. And it wouldn't restore the relationship between this man and the parents. That was broken. What would have to be done is that the parents would have to extend forgiveness to this man. They would have to offer it to him. The man would have no control on his side over the reconciliation because he was the one who sinned against them. He was the offender. Only the, the parents who were offended could offer forgiveness. And we too offended a holy and perfect God. We can do nothing to reconcile the relationship. It's broken. God and God alone can choose to reconcile us back to him through his forgiveness. God's love motivated not only the forgiveness of our sin, but also Christ's death on the cross. That man did not deserve forgiveness. And neither do we. But the immeasurable riches of God's love and mercy made our forgiveness and ultimately our reconciliation to God possible. His love and mercy made our reconciliation to him possible. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So first we see that salvation is from sin. We are saved from our sin. Next, we are saved by God's great love. And here we see that salvation is into new life. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. A dead person can do nothing to make himself alive again. He must be made alive by a miracle. And God, because of his great power in love, miraculously made us alive together with Christ. Now, there's some believers that doubt this concept that we talk about of once saved, always saved. But Paul encourages us in Romans 6, 5, when he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ's death brought us new life in him. And the power of the Holy Spirit seals us and continues to sustain it eternally. 
Verses 6 and 7 go on. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we see that now salvation is with a purpose. Salvation in Christ has a reason. We're not now dead in our sin anymore. We are now dead to sin, alive to righteousness, as Romans 6 tells us, but we will also share in his heavenly glory. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase in verse 7, so that, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that tells us right there the purpose of our salvation. His purpose is to show his riches and grace. Salvation is not only for our benefit and redemption to save us from our sin, but it's also for God's own glory and fame. Through the kindness God shows us in Christ, he also glorifies himself. While at the same time we receive his blessings of forgiveness of sin and eternal glorification. His grace is endless and his kindness is limitless. And all of it is for his glory. Next we get to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is through faith. Faith is our response to God's grace and salvation. But it isn't within our own power that this faith is produced. If we are truly dead in our sins, it would be impossible for us to conjure up enough faith. If we could, then this would be a salvation of works. Many people will ask, as did the rich young ruler in Luke 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do? What must I do? Well, the answer is quite simple. Nothing. You can't do anything. The work has already been accomplished. God is extending his grace right now. And we must believe in the finished work of Christ. Paul tells us that even our faith is a result of God's power and mercy. Grace is unearned. And if we had to earn it or muster up enough faith, then it wouldn't be grace. Being kind to your neighbor and giving to your church or even baptism, 
while great things have no power to save you. They have no power to reconcile you to God. The works that saved you were not your own. They were the works of Christ. But it is only because of the gracious gift of God that we are saved. Faith is a gift of grace supplied by God. Finally, we get to verse 10. Keep in mind, this whole time, Paul is still speaking to believers in Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we saw that salvation was from sin. Salvation is by God's great love. Salvation is into new life. It's with a purpose. It's through faith. And finally, it is unto good works. So as we've already seen, our works cannot and will not save us. Our salvation isn't gained through doing good things. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says, but when the goodness of and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our good works cannot and will not produce salvation in us, but Good works are an integral part of living out our salvation. Though they don't save us, those works, the Bible has quite a lot to say about works. In Galatians 2, it speaks of works of the law, which are good, but do not have any power to save. Hebrews 6 speaks of dead works, as well as deeds that are of darkness and the flesh. These are all evil works because they are not done by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are done within the power of man and still they do not save. It says, for we are his workmanship. So before we can do any good work unto the glory of God, he must first do a good work in us. At the point and moment of salvation, God has made us into his workmanship. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, given the gift of faith, and made to do good works for his namesake and for his glory. Paul told Timothy that the believer is equipped for every good work. So God made us into his workmanship. We see here, see here that God prepared these works beforehand. Paul writes to the Romans, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Before time began, God had a plan to bring his people back to himself, and to mold us into the very image of his son. From our fallen, dead state, 
to eternal glory. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a uh, new, somewhat new worship song that has been going around for a little while. It's by a, mat, a man named Pat Barrett. He did songs, uh, some other songs that we've actually sung here before. But this song says, You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. We are God's workmanship. Look how far he has brought us. We were once dead in our sins, but he made us alive. We were living in our sin, but he made us to do good works in righteousness. Believers in Christ are continually, daily being formed by God's loving hands. The same hands that broke us free from our bondage and opened our eyes to see his light. That song continues, you're not finished with me. You're not finished with me yet. God will continue to produce good works in every believer until they either die and are taken to glory with God or until the day that Jesus returns. Either way, let us rejoice that God is not finished with us yet. We see that God the Father planned for the salvation of his people. Christ the Son purchased it on the cross. And the Holy Spirit preserves it and seals it by his power and unto good works. We are saved by grace alone through faith, not because of anything that we have done but because God is rich in mercy and he's great in love. Salvation is a miraculous gift of God. We must believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He lived a perfect life that we could not. He bore our sins on the cross. He died the death that we deserved and he satisfied the wrath of God. He rose again on the third day and he is now glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father. We must believe in his finished work. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, if you have been saved by God's grace, let this be a reminder, a glorious reminder of who you once were. And a moment to rejoice that God has brought you out of sin and into righteousness, out of death and into life. Rejoice that you are alive in Christ. Oh, his glorious, glorious grace. And if you've not received this miraculous gift of forgiveness and faith in Jesus. God is graciously offering that gift right now. You must repent and turn from your sin. Cling to Christ and Christ alone.
Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for your glorious grace. Lord, we deserved to stay dead. Lord, we are nothing without you. But Lord, in your kindness and mercy, you reached down. You tore through the bonds that held us. You opened our eyes to see your light and you made us alive. You restarted our hearts and you gave us a new one. Lord, everyone that is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Lord, I just pray that this is an encouragement for those in this room that are believers in Christ. That they know they are truly saved by you and nothing can take that away. Neither height nor depth nor angels, nor demons. Nothing can take their salvation away from them. And if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know Christ in the way that I just described him, I just pray that you would soften their hearts, give them a heart of flesh that's moldable. And Lord, give them the glorious gift of faith in Jesus Christ that we rest in today. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray.